them all. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. Hey, a couple of things before we get into the message tonight. I, uh, I was going through a couple of my bookshelves. If you've been with us for any amount of time, you know I do this every now and again because the, the, the books that are just sitting on my bookshelf aren't helping anyone else. What's that? He's already getting close. You got to wait till the end of the service though because there's so many books, right? Marcus is, is, is positioned because he knows. Usually in this moment, it's a first come first serve and then there's a race to the front because we like a little competition here at the City Life Church. There are winners and losers here. So it's, but because there's so many, usually it's just a couple, just at the end of the service, if there's one up here that you like, these are for you to take for free. And, uh, and, and uh, we want you to be able to, uh, um, we want you to be able to find truth in God's word sometimes through people that find things in the Bible we can't find on our own. You with me? And so we just, we love that there are gifted authors that have been just uh, given this wonderful ability to teach and communicate in all of these books I've read and, uh, and have had an impact on my life. And so I hope that, uh, I hope that some of you will, will take advantage of that. So, hey, just a quick nod too to what Vanessa was talking about for summer camp. Seriously, that, that no one uh, here at the City Life Church in the history of this church has ever not done something because they couldn't afford it unless they were silent. You with me? It, so if, if for some reason you look at what camp costs and you say, I can't afford to send my child, then your very next conversation needs to be with one of us. We are going to protect your dignity. No one's going to know that your child was scholarshiped. It's not like they get a different t-shirt or right a different tag. I'm a scholarship kid. right? No one's going to know. And if you come and talk to us, then no one's going to know either, except for maybe a couple of people behind the scenes that work with bookkeeping and Pastor David. And, and we, we want your kids to go. It might be that you've got to go, like, we're sending three. I, I get it. It's not cheap. So you might say, well, I can afford to send one of my kids, but I really I want to be able to send both. I can't. Come talk to us, please. Do not, do not let pride and the help that you need to ask for because we have the money to give to you. And one of the reasons we have money to give to you is because you're generous in your giving. I so appreciate Sharon Thomas talking about missions giving. A hundred percent of the missions giving that happens in this church Every dollar that comes in for missions giving goes right back out. None of it stays here. Tens of thousands of dollars last year poured in for missions work, and all of that money goes right back out. And so thank you for your generosity that you continue to demonstrate year after year after year after year here at the City Life Church. So I'm excited uh, to, to uh, keep going in our Welcome Weekend series. We're in part two. Uh, I'm going to hit part three next week. We skipped a week for Father's Day. We had a Father's Day message last weekend. Uh, but the weekend before that uh, was part one for Welcome Weekend. And so if you're visiting tonight and you're kind of in that place where you're trying to figure out, is this the church that God's speaking to me about uh, calling home, uh, then you can go online, get that through the podcast, the notes for the message. There's a PDF that's always up there so you can download those notes. We tend to cover a lot of textual ground uh, in our message. It's a teaching pulpit here. And so if you're a note taker, sometimes that can be frustrating. And so you can download those PDFs and all those verses are going to be there. So we also have a packet that's here for you. You'll, you'll be able to get them on the way out in the lobby area of the sanctuary, also in the lobby area uh, coming in by the cafe. And this tells the story of the church. It talks about our values and what we believe. Uh, there's, there's information in here too, if you want to turn something in to help us connect with you. Uh, and then if you read through this and you've got questions, we're easy to get a hold of. And so those packets are, again, are here for you as well. I like these weekends too, because if you've been with us for any amount of time, these welcome weekends, they remind you why you love this church. That's our hope. 
is that it just re-inspires your heart for while you're excited uh, to call City Life Church your home. So, hey, all right, so one more thing before I get into my message. Just had a sentence during the worship service for somebody here that uh, I was at a, uh, a vow renewal party uh, last night. Jim and Debbie Bell, who have just been celebrated members of this church for many years, celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary uh, last night. And so it was awesome uh, to be able to hang out with them. But before the party started... I was having a conversation with someone from Long Island. Now, I'm not from Long Island. I'm from Virginia, right? And there's rules about how close you stand to people in Virginia, right? We have rules, right? And there, there's got to be a certain amount of distance, right? I call it the, the sweet tea gap, right? If you're from the South, you should be able to, each of you should be able to hold a sweet tea in your hand in front of you without touching glasses, and then that's close enough, Right? If you're close enough to kiss me on the cheek, you're too close, right? You're too close. And so we're having this conversation, and this person's from Long Island, right? And they just can't help it, right? Because they're from a different place than I am. And, and so the closer they are, the better. And so I'm, right, I'm doing this, right? You know the scooch? You've been there. It's just a little scooch, just a little scooch, right? And then they're doing their scooch, right? They're doing their scooch, right? They're doing theirs. I was joking with somebody. Our conversation started by the garden. We ended up by the, by the, uh, by the, by the parking lot over there on the right because I kept scooching. And I'm, sh- I'm sharing that story with you because, because sometimes it feels like that's what God's doing in your life is that, that he's in your personal space. And, and it's fair to say to people that this is uncomfortable and I have a personal space and I want you to be in it. I don't want you to be in it. But we can never say that to God. God belongs in our personal space and he has a right to be there because he created you. He created a purpose for you. And if you're here tonight and this service feels like a lot, it feels like a lot to you, it might be because God's stepping into your personal space. And what I, what I would suggest to you is stop doing the scooch. Don't, don't take a step away from him. What I would say to you is, is in my, and it might be by the end of the service we talk about some things that help you figure out what it's gonna look like. What I would say to you, as uncomfortable as it might be, take a step towards him. Take a step towards him because he wants to do some things in your life, Ephesians 3.20, that are exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ever ask or imagine. All right, so every church, every church, just a little recap, should have a message and a moment and a mission. If a church really has a vision, it's going to have these three components, a message, a moment, and a mission. Our message is heaven now, heaven forever. The first heaven is a lowercase h. The second heaven is a capital H. It's this idea that eternal life is not about deferred gratification. Eternal life isn't about me giving up everything worth doing in this life so I can go to the heaven that's waiting for me. Your best life is going to be following Christ in the here and now. Heaven now. heaven. We're not going to experience all the wonder and the glory of the heaven that's to come, but we believe that as you make a vow of devotion to Christ, that there is an adventure in this life that is filled with unspeakable joy. As Steve said, it's going to have hardships. It's going to have hardships. But the victory that comes through those hardships, it's part of the adventure that God wants to take you on. Psalm 27, 13, I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's our message. Heaven now, heaven forever. Every time God says no to us, Tara talked about it during worship, every time God says no to us, it's because he's protecting us from mediocrity. Our moment, our moment is that your family from the first hello. That's our moment. We, we want to be one of the most welcoming churches in the region. 
And it's not because we're trying to grow this church. That's not why we do it. Our people are trained to be welcoming because we want you to experience the emotion that God has in his heart when he sees you. We want you to see a countenance and experience an emotion that represents what God feels and thinks about you. And so when you come into this church, you're, we, we, we're going to be welcoming, we're going to be friendly, we're, we're going to be that person that maybe comes up and gives you a hug, whether or not you want a hug or not, because that's the one exception in the South, is right, you hug and then you got to get out, right? You got to get into the personal space and you got to get right back out of the personal space, is that God loves you with an indescribable love. His heart is so full when he thinks of you, and we want you to experience that when you walk in these doors. Your family from the first hello. Our mission is this. We are committed to being a church where people encounter God's presence, embrace God's family, and then engage God's missions. Committed to being a church where people encounter God's presence, embrace God's family, and engage God's mission. We are positional, we're relational, and we're sacrificial. Positional, relational, and sacrificial. We were talking to a new family just last week, and they've been looking around, and, and God's been speaking to them about finding a new church, and so we were on their list, and they visited a few times. They've got a nine-year-old daughter, and the nine-year-old daughter, after one of their first visits on the way home, says, I want to go to that church, talking to the City Life Church. They said, why is that? She said, because they're happy there. Because they're happy there. Come on, isn't that good? Right? It's good, isn't it? And we are happy here. We are happy here because of God's love for us, and we want you to experience that. And so you go, that nine-year-old girl. (laughs) Missional, positional, relational, sacrificial. Listen, from his presence, with his family, toward his mission. From his presence, with his family, toward his mission. Two weeks ago, we talked about encountering God's presence and why that's such an important part of who we are. You maybe, you've not seen people like you in a worship service just spontaneously come to the altar. It's part of what we talked about last week. The Bible talks about all these different ways that we posture ourselves to position us so that we can be awakened to the presence of God in this place. City life is a place where we are intentionally positional, spiritually posturing ourselves in settings to encounter God's presence. That was two weeks ago. You can get that on our podcast. So this week we're going to be talking about embracing God's family, embracing God's family. City life is a place where we are lovingly relational. We're lovingly relational, creating a culture that inspires people to embrace God's family. Let me read that again. City Life is a place where we are lovingly relational, creating a culture that inspires people to embrace God's family. Luke 15, 3 through 10 says, so Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God, over 99 others who are righteous 
and haven't strayed away. And then it goes on, we get the parable of the lost coin, and then one of the other gospels follows it up with a third parable, the parable of the lost son, or the parable of the prodigal son. And we're giving these parables we talked about two weeks ago for one reason, it's because God is trying to teach us a value system, that he values things in ways that are beyond us. And to be a follower of Christ, we've got to lay down our, what we value and begin to value what he values. But I'm reading these, 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 these parables again tonight and pointing you to them. Again, they come out of Luke 15, because it's interesting that every time the one that is lost is found, what does God do with them? He puts them back in community. He doesn't take the one sheep and send it off by itself and say, no, 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 you were supposed to be by yourself. You were supposed to be by yourself over here. No, no, he says, I need to go find the one, but when I find the one, I'm gonna put it right back in the 99. And so he's teaching us something about the value of community that when you find yourself disconnected from God's family, he's gonna reach for you, he's gonna pull you, he's gonna put you back in. The coin gets put back with the other nine because it belongs. It's supposed to be part of 10. And when the son comes home, he's restored to his family. For some of you, you've made a vow of devotion to Christ. You're headed to heaven. Heaven's promised to you. But you've been living your life as a spiritual orphan. And we want to be a church that inspires you to rediscover family again. This is a core part of who we are here at the City Life Church. Acts 2, 42 to 47. Listen to this description of the very first church. In the first century, after Jesus died and rose from the dead, the day of Pentecost happens. Peter gives his first sermon. We're going to get into those texts tonight. But there is a church that is birthed, and this is the description that's given of them. All of the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Acts 2, 42 to 47. And to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple every day. We joke about this all the time. They went to church every day and had life groups every day. We're just trying to get you to come to church once a week. They worshiped together at the temple every day. And met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And one of the reasons why the church was growing is because of the church that they were. It's because the community that God had created inspired other people to want to be a part of it. Listen to these characteristics I wrote down that I drew out of the text. There was a trust in leaders. There was the primacy of church family. They made church a priority. They sacrificed their standard of living and they risked their own personal safety. Now, those are some hallmarks of, of some, an incredible community. And even though we're 2,000 years later, those same hallmarks should define who we are today. Now, I'm gonna talk about at the end of the service what those should look like in 2018 here for us as a church because some of the ways they are expressed in the text are a reflection of the culture that they were in the time that they lived. So we've got to find the principle, and then we've got to take that principle and say, how is that applicable in the modern world that we live in today here in America? But it should also beg the question, what led to such a devout community of people? Meaning that, what happened before Acts 2? If this is the community that they became, trust in leaders, primacy of church family, sacrifice their standard of living, risk their own personal safety, how did they get there? And I believe that as you back up and read in the texts that are preceding this description, you find some hallmarks of a culture that was birthed, that created the church that they became. 
Because a church must create a culture that inspires people to embrace community. The church has a responsibility to create a culture that inspires people to want to be a part of that community. You just can't wake up one day and say, we're going to be a church where people trust leaders and where people make church a priority, where people are willing to sacrifice their standard of living and risk personal safety. Again, we're going to talk about what that would look like in our modern world. You've got to do something to create a culture. You've got to begin to work together so that those things can describe who you are. I believe that as you study scripture and you begin to see the things that God establishes, he's revealing something about our needs. He creates it because he's trying to teach us what we need to have. He establishes the church because he's trying to bring a revelation to us that we were born for a spiritual family. All the things that he establishes in his word, we can look at those and ask the question, what is that supposed to teach me about a need that I have? And by virtue of the fact that he created the church, it's actually one of Jesus' declarative statements. There are only a few declarative statements, which are the, the statements that Jesus himself made for why he came. One, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. And another, he said, I came to build my church. And so if there's important enough for them to be declarative statements for why Jesus himself came, then there should be a significance that we have placed on those in our journey as devoted followers of Christ, as his disciples. The church must create a culture that inspires people to embrace community. The first thing that we see as we dig into Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 is that there were powerful leaders that were a part of that movement. Powerful leaders. When Ananias and Sapphira died because they lied during the offering, giving went up the next week. Are you tracking with me? Right? It's interesting, isn't it? The stories, like of all the ones that they pick, and it's also the first mention of student ministries. The very first mention of student ministries in the church is they had the responsibility to carry out the dead people who lied during the offering, right? It's a new, new part of your job description. Huh? We got the people in the blue shirts and then we got the people in the dark shirts, right? You don't want to be carried out by them. Why is that story in there? It's in there for a lot of reasons and maybe that's another sermon for another time, but one of them is this is to say to us that if a church is going to be healthy, if a church is going to create a culture that inspires people to want to be a part of it, there have to be leaders that are mature in their giftings. you got to have leaders that are mature in their giftings. And so a lot of the ways that we read about the apostles and the way that God gifted them, the question then becomes the leaders that are here, especially a part of the City Life Church, the question is then what gifts has God given to them? In 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 are places in the Bible where you can read about some of these gifts and God puts all kinds of different gifts and all kinds of different leaders. And to be a leader here, you've got to be mature in that gift. It means that you've been walking in the demonstration of that gift for a long time. It might be a, as a leader that you're, you're gifted in evangelism. It could be that there's a, a prophetic side to who you are that God speaks to you. It, it could be that, that your leadership is, is one gifted in administration and orga, organization. It could be that part of your leadership gifting is you just have an incredible ability to encourage people. There's all kinds of ways that God gifts leaders. But if they're going to be a leader, meaning that we say follow them as they follow Christ, you've got to be mature in that gifting. It can't just be something that you've begun to figure out yesterday and you're looking for some people to practice on. Too many people get thrust into leadership, maybe because there's natural ability, but there's a lack of spiritual maturity. And in order for the church to be healthy, 
You've got to wait for spiritual maturity to catch up to the natural charisma that they have. Churches get into trouble because they're in a hurry with people they put into leadership. Powerful leaders, powerful leaders, leaders who are mature in their giftings. Another thing that you find as you dig around in these texts in Acts 1 and 2 is that leaders were humble and authentic. How much humility do you think that it took for Peter to stand up and give the very first sermon? The very first sermon was delivered by Peter. We're just days before he was denying Christ. How much humility do you think it took for him? The Bible doesn't tell us, but I got to believe that there was probably a conversation. I can't do it. I'm not the one. Because the very people that he was talking to, some of them would have been the very people that he denied Christ to. How much humility does it take to get up in front of a crowd of people when you've had your darkest moment denying Christ and then you're willing to get right back up in front of them and declare who he is? Humility. People are not looking for churches where leaders are perfect. They're not. But they aren't looking for churches where people are mature in their giftings, demonstrate the character of Christ, which we teach are the 24 virtues. If that language is new for you, there's a little green book in the back called Praxis. Get one of those. Ask somebody in a blue shirt. They're free for you. Every week we have those books available. If you're bringing a guest, make sure you take them back there and get one of those books. The 24 virtues, the picture of the character of Christ that we find in Scripture. We want leaders that those 24 are present. They don't, you don't have to be perfect in those virtues, but you got to be consistent in those virtues. This idea of leaders being authentic means that they're also in permission-giving relationships with other people. There's not a leader in this church that's not in a permission-giving relationship with other leaders. What does that mean? It means, for example, through the series that we just did on directional living about Emmaus scale. You can get the, all of this on our, on our podcast, but, so I'm not going to take the time to explain it all, but on the Emmaus scale, when you're making decisions about purpose things in your life, or the Sodom and Gomorrah scale, when you're making decisions about moral things in your life, about morality and, and matters of conscience and forgoing liberties, a strong leader the stronger they are, the more permission-giving relationships they have, yeah. right? You might think, I'm, I want to be in leadership because the more I'm in leadership, the less answerable I am to people, but that's not how it works in a healthy church. The deeper you go into leadership, the more answerable you become because the more permission-giving relationships you submit yourself to. The early church was a place where leaders were powerful, they were mature in their giftings, but they were also humble and they were authentic. They were creating a culture that inspired people to want to be a part of their community. As you dig around in these texts, you find that there was a belief in God's prophetic voice. Listen to Acts 1, 23 to 26. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice and Matthias, then they all prayed, oh Lord, you know every heart, so show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. This is a great text. We don't cast lots anymore. That was a cultural expression of who they were because of the people they were, because of the ethnicity they had, and because of the time that they lived in. But what they were doing is they were trying to create a situation and a circumstance that was beyond their control where God could speak. There's all kinds of ways that we can do that today. We, we talk about in Christian communities how you put a fleece out, right? Referring to Gideon. Maybe you're in a place of big decision and you, and, and you say some things that, that you're asking God because you want him to make it clear to you. Listen, the nature of God is to reveal, not to hide. He wants you to know his will. 
And as a church here, it's that we believe in the prophetic voice of God, that he wants to actively speak into the decisions that we're making. We don't cast lots, but we pray, we fast. Sometimes we, we agree together as a leadership team and we, and we, we feel like God gives us maybe a, a, a set of circumstances that, that would say if he doesn't do it by this time or in this way, that that's one of the ways he's letting us know it's a no. We believe in the prophetic voice of God. The prophetic voice of God doesn't mean that you have permission to be foolish. It means that he expects you to take steps of faith. Analytics, decision-making matrices, and data, that's an important part of who we are at City Life Church. It is, because those are the things that keep you from being foolish. And oftentimes, those are the things that let you know when you're about ready to take a step of faith. And the difference between foolishness and faith is that do you have a divine mandate to take the step? Where churches get into trouble is they think it's faith, but it's really foolishness because they're trying to draw God in through the risks that they're willing to take, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is saying, I see the numbers, I know they don't now add up, but I know God is asking this of me, so we're going to take a step of faith because there's a mandate that's driving you in spite of the numbers that you see. I remember when we were, began talking about planning the Suffolk campus, we had a plan. We knew how much money that we needed to raise. We had done all the data and the analysis and the number crunching, and we wanted to subsidize their budget for 12 months to give them a chance to get started. And we, and if you were part of us, then we, we, we launched this huge strategy. And so when it came time, we were about a month out from planning that campus campus and one of the things that the church needed to grow by a certain number the Newport News campus and so we were about a month out and and we had not grown to see the number that we needed to grow and we had not raised the money that we thought that we needed to raise and so as a leadership team we sat down and we had to make a big decision are we supposed to take a step of faith or is this going to be foolishness and all of us had this collective sense so God has asked us to do it and so we're going to take a step of faith even though we've not seen the numbers in attendance and even though we've not seen the giving Can I tell you, on the night that we brought the team together to pray over them, to launch them the next month, that night was our biggest attending service that we had seen that entire year. There were over 300 people at that service. We we didn't even see that at Easter, right? And and that was God saying to us, I see your faith, and it's going to be okay. We didn't raise all the money that we needed, but guess what? Two years later, there's still $70,000 sitting in a church campus planting fund that we didn't even spend because the giving just took off once it came. Come on, you can clap for that. It's because we believe in God's prophetic voice. It's how the first church was birthed. You've got to trust that God wants to speak, and sometimes that means he's going to ask you to take a step of faith. When you look into the story of the birthing of the church, there was diversity in that church like few churches will ever see in their lives. Listen to Acts 2, 7 to 12. I love these verses. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed, talking about them experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit in spiritual language. We're gonna be preaching on that over the summer. These people are, from, are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and other areas of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Now that's quite a list of diverse people from different parts of the world. 
And we all hear these people speaking in our language about the wonderful things that God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. So when you read in Acts 2, which we did at the end of 47, and it says the Lord added to the fellowship of those who were being saved, guess who he was adding from? He was adding from these people. There was incredible diversity in the church, and it created incredible problems, and they had to work through that. And the one thing that they had to figure out is that we can't take things that are part of our ethnic culture and spiritualize them to a degree that makes it a mandate for people who are from a different culture. This is the question that we ask all the time of ourselves here at the City Life Church. Does our church look like our city? Does our church look like our city? And I think it does. And it's going to keep looking like our city. And one of the reasons, because we're committed to diversity here at the City Life Church. Let me read you this statement. Diverse congregations are the result of a refusal to have singular ethnic cultural dominance that becomes spiritualized. Diverse congregations are the result of a refusal to have a singular ethnic cultural dominance that becomes spiritualized. Let me just talk to you about white cultural dominance. And I have permission because if you've looked at the color of my skin recently, I'm an expert in it. Historically, this is the white church. Let me read it to you. Male-dominated, emotionally reserved, rigid structure, quiet worship, analytics-driven, and overly time-conscious. Many of you grew up in churches like that, and you just didn't know what to call them. Well, I'm telling you, it's called white. As white people, we like these things. This might be news to you. You might be of a different ethnicity, and maybe these things resonate with you. That happens sometimes, too. You might be of a different ethnicity, but there's something about another ethnicity, cultural distinctives of that ethnicity that resonate with you. Where churches get into trouble is when they make cultural things spiritual things without having the courage to say, no, this is just, I get it. This is who we are. This is just part of our culture. You don't have to spiritualize it to justify it. Now, you might not ever be a diverse church. I'm not saying that churches that have a ethnic cultural dominance are bad. I'm not saying that. What I'm, what I'm saying is that they will never be diverse, especially if they spiritualize those things. When you spiritualize it, what you begin to do is that you're beginning to say to everyone else, you should be more like us because we're doing what God expects. That's called spiritualizing something. And sometimes it is good to do that. But as a church, we're careful here. We're careful here to not let any one individual ethnicity be the dominant ethnic cultural expression. You've got to make room for different ethnicities to have their expression as a part of our church. There's generational cultural dominance. Come on. Come on. We like our jokes about millennials. We do. But you better be careful because they're going to be taking care of us one day. And they're going to remember all those snide little comments that you made. I know. How about socioeconomic cultural dominance? There's all kinds of cultural dominance that works its way into the church. This goes all the way back to the beginning why you've got to have discerning, mature leaders that understand these kinds of things that are working to bring diversity. 
There are practical steps that we've got to be willing to take. There might be certain parts of our church that feel white. There might be certain parts of our church that feel black. There might be certain parts of our church, and then you can fill in the blank. There might be certain parts of our church that feel like it's from this generation. There might be certain parts of our church that feel like it's more from this kind of socioeconomic class. That's not accidental because we want to make room for cultural expression. If you don't, there will not be diversity. Your church will not look like your city, and you will not be a reflection of the first century church that God intended you to build. How about courageous conversations? Courageous conversations. Peter, like once he started getting warmed up, he was just going for it. He was going for it. You read in his sermon about a quarter of the way through, he looks at the crowd and he says, and all you Jews out there, you killed Jesus. And you did it by partnering with all the, the lawless Gentiles, right? That was just like profanity to Jewish people, what he was saying to them. Gentiles to them were completely spiritually unclean. You couldn't have anything to do with them, right? This isn't part of God's religion. This was part of man's religion. And so when Peter says, and you did it with them, you partnered with lawless pagans to kill the son of God. I'm just saying that's some direct preaching right there. I've probably never been that direct with you in 10 years. Maybe I'm going to try that next week. <laughs> you got to love Peter being willing to speak truth to power. If we're going to look at anything like the first century church, we've got to be willing to have conversations that make you uncomfortable. We're going to talk about it here. We talk about money at this church. We talk about social justice at this church. We talk about racial divide and racial division at the church. We're not afraid to talk about color of skin in this church. It's right. It's part of, you got to have courageous conversations. And sometimes these courageous conversations, they, they have to be even more public. And so I, I remember a, a couple of years ago, we did a whole sermon series on race and politics. It just challenged our church. Put it out on our podcast. I keep a blog out. You can get to my blog on letspraxis.com. I, I talk about issues that are happening in our world all the time on that blog. When the things broke out in Charlottesville, I sat down with, with Chris and David and began to write a response. And guess what? My first response was wrong. My first response was white. And I kept giving them my, my, my drafts and they kept sending it back to me, right? Like somebody, a serial killer had stabbed it with a red pen. But the more I listened to them, the more I began to learn that I had biases that I didn't even know I had. And then the blog came out of that. Right? This is part of who we are. We did that series, Racial Taboo, and we invited another church that's, that's predominantly black to come and partner with us. And we broke out into small groups and had conversations with people. For some of you, that's the longest conversation that you've had with someone that looked that different from you in your entire life. And for some of you, you hadn't had a conversation like that since. Shame on you. Right? All right, so I'll start it this week instead. <laughs> we're gonna have courageous conversations at this church. Not because we're trying to be contemporary, not because we're trying to be the hipster church, because we're trying to be the first century church. This is how the church was birthed. This is how it started. They were creating a culture that inspired people to embrace community. You can't get to Acts 2, 42 to 47 without doing these things first. Courageous conversations. Let me give you another one. They shared in ministry. At some point, an idea worked its way into Christianity, this idea of professional clergy. Meaning that, that's their job. And I'm just going to show up and cheer them on. 
everybody's called to full-time vocational ministry. It's just how it's expressed and what it looks like is different for all of us. But God expects all of us to be just as committed to building his church and doing the work of the ministry. Listen to this verse in Acts 1.17. This is one of the reasons why you can't read the Bible too fast. Because there's some subtle stuff in there. Sometimes the, the, remember when the people sat down to write the New Testament, they didn't realize they were writing the New Testament. You tracking with me? They didn't. And when all these churches that Paul was writing to, when these churches were being birthed, the only thing that they had that they knew to call the Bible was the Old Testament, right? The, the idea of the canonization of Scripture didn't, didn't come until decades later. So here we have Acts 1.17. It says, Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Now, Acts 17 is given to us by Luke because he's an incredibly gifted historian. He's a physician by trade, but he's an incredibly gifted historian. The Holy Spirit is inspiring him to give us the gospel of Luke and then also Acts, which means the Acts of the Apostles, right? Acts is really part two of, of his story of the birthing of the church. So he's giving us what he thinks is cultural context to help us to understand why they're looking for God's prophetic voice to pick the next disciple. But in doing so, so what the Holy Spirit inspires him to write drops this profound principle. He shared in the ministry with us. Then we're not careful, we'll just scooch right past that. But this is one of the hallmarks of the early church is that when they looked around the room at each other, even though they understood that people had different giftings and people callings and there was structure and there was authority and there were leaders and there were others, that they had this collective sense is that we're all sharing in the work of the ministry together. At the City Life Church, we believe in something called participation brings transformation. Because there's something about sharing in the ministry that begins to bring about the change that needs to happen in you. For too many churches, you, you've got to wait too long before they trust you to do some things. And we're going to take some chances with you here. Now, we joke all the time we don't take chances with our kids. We do background checks. We've got all the proper ratios that you've got to have for different age groups. We've got to know who you are before we're going to put you back there. You've got to fill out all the right paperwork. But with the grown-ups, we take chances. Right? <laughs> if you're dropping the F-bomb when you turn in your membership paper, just so you know you're not going to work with the kids because that's not part of their verbal training, right? But we're going to put you to work in here because I don't care what words come out of your mouth as you're getting started here. We just don't care because the only way those words are going to change is for you to begin to do something for God. Participation brings transformation. Participation brings No matter who you are, what your life is about, what you're into, what you're trying to get out of, what you're not even sure you're supposed to be getting out of, what we're going to say, we're going to give you something to do here. Participation brings transformation because every person is supposed to have a sense of sharing in the ministry of the kingdom of God. And if you call this your church home, you got to find something that you do once a month to make this service happen. Not because we're in need of your help to make this service happen, but you're in need of the work that God wants to do in you as you begin to make the service happen. And if you call this your church home and you don't do something once a month, then I would say, this is what I would say, you're doing the scooch with God. You're doing the scooch. He's trying to take steps towards you and you keep stepping away. I guarantee you that there is a reason that you can come up with for why you can't do something 12 times a year. And I'm going to tell you, God's got an answer for you. 
Every person here, you can find a reason to be a part of what's happening here 12 times a year. Not because we're desperate for your help, but because you're desperate for the transformation that God wants to work in your life. And let me tell you this, another reason is because when you step into that place, you're a part of saying to everybody else that's here, we believe in this value of sharing in ministry because it's part of what creates a culture that inspires people to want to be a part of the church. There's all kinds of people in our city, they love Jesus, but they've been hurt by the church, they've been wounded by the church, and they're looking for a place that's safe again to take a chance, and we want to be that church for them. It's one of the reasons why we're on Saturday nights. It's to be a little bit different, to create a little bit of an interest, to maybe that person that's out there that says, maybe I'll try them one more time before I give up on community, and we hope they try it here. Acts 2, 42 to 47. So let's go back to those. That trust in leaders, the primacy of church family, sacrifice their standard of living, risk their own personal safety. So we worked through some of the values that we saw that inspire people to want to be a part of this community that was defined by these four things. What do they look like today? Because again, we know these were ancient people living in an ancient time from a different culture. So in this modern world and in this culture, what will those things look like? What does that trust in leaders look like today? It means that you're willing to give others a voice in your life. That's what it means. We're not looking to control your life. That's not who we are here at the City Life Church. You've been a, we, well, all of us have been a part of churches where people are about control. We're not about control. We're about influence. And you need people that are farther along in their journey as a devoted follower of Christ who are farther along than you to have influence in your life. This idea of trusting in leaders means that you give others a voice in your life. When you're making big decisions on the Emmaus scale, that there are people here that you get to know, that you can call them up and talk about big decisions that you're making, invite them into a place of praying with you and to let them give you counsel and advice and wisdom. It doesn't mean that they tell you what to do. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about is giving people a voice in your life. When you're wrestling with sin, you're not sure something, whether it is a sin, whether it should be an issue of morality or a matter of conscience or forgoing liberty. That was another sermon that we did not too long ago. We talked in our Directional Living series. Sometimes you need people that are farther along than you, have been on this journey a little bit longer, and you can put some things in front of them and let them begin to help you sort some things out with what God's word says about certain matters of life. Trusting in leaders means that you're giving others a voice in your life. The primacy of church family. We're going to become that church that has services every week and life groups every day. No, we're not doing that because that's not part of what church looks like in our culture. We're not, we're not supposed to do that. But the principle stays true. It means that you've got to make church a priority. It does. How that's expressed in our culture, who we are today, this is how we got here. We have church once a week. This is what we do. And, and Saturday night, if you're going to call City Life Church your home, it's going to mean that you've got to reorder your life a little bit. Might be that your whole life you've gotten used to being at church on Sunday. I get it. It takes work. We've been doing it for 10 years. I understand how, how it is. It means sometimes saying no to people, that you get invited to events. It just let, it's letting them know, I, I, can't, I can't be there till 7 because church lets out. And sometimes the pastor's long-winded and we don't even get out by then. <laughs> Why don't you come to church with me and then we'll go out after? That's a novel idea. You've got to be willing to make church a priority in your life. Not going to meet every week. Not going to have life groups every day. But we do have life groups. We do have ministries that you need to be involved in. If you've got teenagers, you should be bringing them here on Wednesdays, right? There's certain things. You've you got to make a decision to make church a priority. That's what it looks like. 2018, here in the 757. Sacrifice their standard of living. We're not going to reinvent the next movement of communal living. 
It worked then because that was an expression of their culture. But it's not an expression of our culture. But you've got to be willing to sacrifice your standard of living to build God's kingdom. And you've got to do it in a way that's culturally relevant. And one of the ways that it's culturally relevant is to find the ways that the Bible speaks about giving that are timeless. And one of them is tithing. I've been tithing my entire Christian life. I love that I spent my first 10 years showing up at church just like you as a devoted follower of Christ. And I was just as excited about giving 10% of what I made to God then as I am now when it's a big part of my life financially. I know sometimes it's hard for pastors to talk about money. It's, it's not hard for me to talk about money because my first 10 years, I was doing it, just what I'm asking you to do. I'm passionate about tithing because I understand the principle of redemption. Tithing, listen to me, is about redemption. It's about redemption. That's why the Bible talks about it so much. Is because 90%, listen to me, with God's blessing his favor is more than 100% without it. 90% with God's blessing and favor is more than 100% without it. If you think you can't afford to do it, what I'm saying is I don't know how you can afford to live without God's blessing and favor over your life. From Genesis to Revelation, people say that tithing's not in the New Testament, and I would say it's because they don't read the Bible enough. Because the principle of redemption is from beginning to end, and tithing is an expression of redemption. Why is it a tenth? I don't know. You can take that up with God. We can ask him that when he gets to heaven. That's the number he picked. There's a reason. And I think part of the reason is because you got to feel it for it to have a redemptive power in your life. We give 10% because we're redeeming the 90% that's left. Does that cost you your standard of living? You better believe that it does. You better believe that it does. We're going to be talking about that maybe in the fall. Usually in the fall, we do a series on giving because we want to talk. What does this book say to me about my finances? Sacrificing your standard of living, it means that you're doing things like giving to missions. It means that you make a faith promise. I'm going to be talking more about that next week. I like to joke all the time in the Lord's Prayer where it says, give us this day our daily bread. It's not so that you can eat the whole loaf by yourself. It's got to be some slices that we set aside. Listen to this last one. They risked their own personal safety. You know the risks that they were taking? They killed Jesus. You know what kind of courage it took for them to start showing up for church? You know what kind of courage it took to respond to that altar call? On that day, in front of those people, they were writing down everybody's names who were coming forward. And you keep reading the story in the, in the book of Acts. They kept killing people. And the church kept growing. They were willing to sacrifice their own personal. What does that look like for us today? It means that we're willing to go where God leads. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like for us in 2018. For those of you that were on that Haiti missions trip that just came back, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You risked your personal safety. And God stepped in in some divine ways to keep them safe on that team. If you don't know about that story, you can find it on Facebook. You can find it through Established Footsteps website, the update, how, why that team got cut short. This is going into these third world countries. Hold your ears, Vanessa. We're sending our son tomorrow, right? There's risks. There's risks. Can I just tell you, the safest place that you can ever be is where God's telling you to go. The safe, if you're going to clap, clap. The safest place that you can ever be is the place where God tells you to go. I lived in the inner city of Richmond for 10 years. When I got married, it was a package deal for Vanessa. If you're gonna get, this is where I live. Drug dealers, prostitutes, right in front of the house. All of our kids were born in a hospital, brought back to home in that house. 
all of their early life. But people would say, don't you, do you, don't you feel unsafe? And, and my first response was, joking response, no, because nobody breaks into houses in my neighborhood because that's how you get killed in my neighborhood. And nobody has anything. People that live in my neighborhood, they actually come to your neighborhood to break into houses. You should be the one that feels unsafe. One of the reasons why I, feel, I felt safe there is because I knew God, I had a mandate on my life to do urban missions and to be a part of helping to do revitalization and reach out to kids. And we've got all kinds of crazy stories about these kids that we were reaching out for 10 years of our life. This is part of our journey. It's the safest place that we could have ever been because it's the place that God told us to live. That's where we ended up in our conversation with people. God's going to ask you to take some risks. And sometimes those risks are going to feel like your personal safety, especially in foreign missions. And again, what I would say to you, don't let fear stop you from taking the step that God's leading you to take. And if you're not sure that it's God speaking to you, then go back and listen to this podcast again and listen to the part about having people that you can trust that can speak into your life. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. I think they're already up here. That's my cue. Sometimes I give them a cue, sometimes they give me one. Hey, if you're visiting the City Life Church, seriously, these are your packets. You need to get one of those. Matthew 16. Matthew 16. We're going to do a song and then we're going to wrap up for the night. Matthew 16 is a great chapter in the Bible because it's, it's the place where Jesus gives us the declarative statement that I've come to build my church. And, and in that, another sermon for another time, we teach on it here during the year. But he says to Peter, Peter, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And there's some nuance in the language there. And there's lots of different ideas about what it means. And I subscribe to the belief that when he says to Peter, he's, he uses the Greek word. It's not little rock and big rock. It's individual rock and many rocks together. That's the language. That's the play on words. He's saying, you got to get out of the pile and into the wall. He's saying, Peter, one rock, I'm going to, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And that rock, he changes the word. And it's the word for an outcropping of rocks. It's a, it's a picture of rocks that are fit so closely together in nature. It's like a, a, a natural wall. It's like a cliff face. And then that's why he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, because that's what the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be people that get up out of the pile as an individual and are willing to let our lives be interconnected in such a dense way, something that we call spiritual family, the church that you call home, that you become a part of something that is immovable by evil that inspires other people to want to be a part of it. And so what I would say to you, get out of your isolation, get out of the pile and into the wall, not just because you need it, but because you're supposed to inspire others to want to be a part of it. Stand with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how rich it is. We, we thank you that you inspired these people like Luke to tell us these stories. And sometimes they thought they were just giving us history, but you were really downloading the culture of the kingdom of heaven. So may it be, God, that in this series that people are going to encounter your presence. They're going to embrace your family. And the next week as we talk about it, they're going to want to engage in your mission. Come on, in Jesus' name, everybody sit together. Amen. Let's worship together.